we are going to open a book that describes events that took place a long time ago. And the, the scholars are still debating, you know, when exactly this happened, this event called the Exodus, second book of the Bible, by the way, first is Genesis, then is Exodus. Some people are looking at it being the, uh, like 1600 BC, 1500 BC. Some are, have it in the 13th century before Christ, long time ago. And that may seem like uh, such ancient history. Why would you read that and why would it have anything to do with you? Um, here's why. It's your story. This is actually our story. If you're someone who has become a follower of Jesus Christ, you've put your faith in Him, you've become part of a rich history, and, you, and I do well to know our history. One person said it something like this, this won't be a direct quote, but Robbie McAlpine, an author that I like, wrote that when we become a follower of Jesus, it's not like we invite Jesus into our life story. It's like He invites us into His life story, and we are entering a rushing river of history that has predated us by literally thousands of years and will pass us by a long time, thousands of, you know, eternity. So the story that we're reading in one sense is your story because if you're a follower of Jesus, this is your family. You're going to read about people like Moses and uh, his big sister Miriam and his big brother Aaron. And someday you're going to be sitting at a cafe in heaven for lunch, and Moses is going to be sitting there, and you're going to be talking to him. Hopefully, he's not going to say, hi, I'm Moses. You've probably read my story. And you'll go, no, I've never heard of you. That would be embarrassing at that moment. He's a big guy in the Bible story. Jesus quotes from him a lot. Paul quotes from him a lot. He's all over the history of the Bible. Hopefully, we'll get to the point where we see his birthday. But secondly... The story of Exodus is, in a sense, prophetic. It's full of images of our Exodus from our Egypt. Moses is a deliverer for a people in slavery who enter a promised land. You and I were all, or some of us still are, depending on where we are in our spiritual journey, in slavery to sin and the ruler of this realm called the prince of the power of the air, Satan. Bob Dylan wrote a song some years ago where he said, you're going to serve somebody. Everybody's got to serve somebody. And he was telling the gospel truth. Then he said, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. So in a, in a very real way, all of us are either in need of an exodus or have come through an exodus. And some people have said that the book of Exodus is to the Old Testament what the gospels are to the New Testament, the story of a great deliverance and a story of people who were far from God being saved and formed into the people of God to participate in the purposes of God. Another thing that you, you should know if you don't is, um, quote, is written in Paul's letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, all of scripture is breathed by God and it's useful, it's profitable for teaching, for instruction, for rebuking, for correcting, so that the man or woman of God may be complete and prepared for every good work. When you and I read and study the Bible, it's profitable to us. So the stories that we're going to get into 
are going to be helpful for all of us. And honestly, I don't know how in-depth or not in-depth we will go. I don't know if we will be studying this together for a long time or if the Holy Spirit will lead us to just kind of hit some highlights and we'll go through it fast. I really don't know. All I know is I felt like the Holy Spirit in my prayers said the next thing to do together as a church family in our growth as disciples is to study this book. So you, you guys ready for this? Okay. Um, I'm going to give some background that, as I said, some of you would know and some of you have never heard of. So those of you that know, be patient for those of us that are learning for the first time. We are going to be reading the second book of the Bible, and as you may have guessed, it's a sequel to the first book of the Bible. <laughs> and the first words of the book just start right in the middle of the story. So it, it, it could be confusing if you don't know. Um, where are the first words? I have them in my notes. The first words are, these are the names of the sons of Israel who went into Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, list of names, uh, the descendants of Jacob, number 70, and all Joseph was already in Egypt. That means nothing to you if you don't know the story. So I need to back up and tell you, for all intents and purposes, we can begin with a guy named Abraham. Anyone ever heard of Abraham? Most of you have. Okay, Abraham, the father of faith. If you believe in Jesus, the Bible says that you have become a daughter or a son of Abraham by faith. The Jewish nation, Israel, is the offspring of this guy named Abraham, who was a friend of God whom God pursued. And in Genesis, we're told of a word that came to Abraham. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Oh, I should stop there. You just noticed that I said Abram instead of Abraham. That wasn't a misspeak. Abram is his name at birth, which means an exalted father. He was a man who had no children. And as an old man, he still had no children. And God said, I'm going to give you a huge bunch of children. When that happened, God changed his name from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. So God took Abraham outside and said, don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. I'm your great reward. He said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, that's how your offspring is going to be. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord credited that belief to him as righteousness. He also said, I'm the Lord God who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land that you're in right now to take possession of it. Where Israel is right now, God said to Abraham, this is your land, I'm going to give it to you. A few verses later in the story, God says to Abraham, his prediction of the future that we're going to read about in Exodus, this is important, so listen, you're going to have a lot of kids, but know this, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. That's exactly what happened. When we start Exodus, it's about 400 years from now. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And after, they will come out with great possessions. So these slaves are going to come out of slavery, and they're going to have all sorts of possessions. That's what we'll read about in Exodus. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace, Abram, and you'll be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin Listen to this interesting thing. For the sin of the Amorites, the people who live here now, has not yet reached its full measure. 
And those of you that know the story of Israel coming into the promised land know it's a bloody, war-filled story. And if you just read it, you go, wow, these were violent people. And it kind of shakes you up. They kill entire nations. 400 years before this is going to happen, God says to Abraham, there are people in here that live here that are absolutely wicked and sinful, and I'm giving them 400 long years to repent. I'm God, and I know the future, and even though I know I'm going to give them this long of a time, they won't repent, and I'm going to come in judgment against them, and I'm going to use your children to be my, my axe. I'm going to use your children to bring my judgment against these people. So when you read about all those, those um, wars and the wiping out of nations that Israel comes and does, know that it's out of the patience of God 400 years before he sends them. But that's another story. So Abraham ends up having a grandson. He has a son named Isaac, grandson named Jacob. Jacob's name is later changed to Israel. And that's a whole other story that would be fun to read, but we don't have time. You can read that by reading the book of Genesis. Israel has 12 sons. The 11th of those 12 sons, you still with me following all this? Okay, the 11th of those 12 sons is a guy named Joseph. Joseph is um, the favorite of the family, which is not very good if you have older brothers. They're jealous. Joseph has dreams that make him look really good and his brothers look really bad. Their brothers are jealous and angry. And they betray him and they sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt as a slave. It's all bad and it's all good because it's God's plan being unfolded. It's amazing. He gets there and the king of Egypt has a couple dreams that are very troubling. Somehow in a long series of events, the king of Egypt is told that there's a guy in prison who happens to have the ability to interpret dreams. Joseph's brought to the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. He hears the dreams, interprets the dreams, and tells him, look, your dreams mean there's going to be seven years of abundance in Egypt followed by seven years of famine. And the famine's going to be so bad it's going to wipe all the good years out. They're going to be forgotten. So I recommend to you that you get someone in charge to collect all of the grain, at least a fifth of it, for the next seven years, store it up so that when the seven bad years come, you'll have plenty of food for everyone. The king of Egypt goes, well, who better than you that can hear from God? You're now second in charge of the entire kingdom. He goes from prison to the second in charge of the entire kingdom in a day. And he follows the plans, and they save all the food. The seven years of famine start, and we get back to Jacob and the rest of his family. They hear there's food in Egypt. They come. It's another long story. But Joseph forgives the brothers that betrayed him. The family's united. They're well taken care of. And now Jacob and his sons and all his offspring are in Egypt. And the plot's beginning to unfold that God said. The, the thing that you, you ought to get out of that at least, and I'm sorry I'm not going to take the time to read it because we're, we're running out of time quickly today, even though I saw, I think the text was on the screen for you. The thing that I want you to hear there is that God has a plan. And when all hell breaks loose, God still has a plan. And when everything goes wrong, God still has a plan. And everything that he said is going to happen, is going to happen. And he's going to use all that bad stuff for his good, for your good, for his purposes, because God's plan is always fulfilled. Okay, so here we get into 
350 years later, we'll start reading in Exodus. Isn't this interesting stuff? I love the Old Testament. I called this section for you the fear of the oppressor because what I want, what I felt like what we need to hear out of this whole text today is the reason the oppressor oppresses so viciously that jumped out at me in my reading and studying is because he actually fears this nation and what would happen if they would enter into the fullness of their destiny. He's terrified of them. And our oppressor, Satan, is terrified of what will happen when you and I become followers of Jesus and enter our destiny. We'll wreak havoc against his kingdom. Anyway, let's read it. These are the names of the son of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Let me check in with you. Am I reading too fast for you to understand me? Okay. My wife warned me, don't go too fast, Ron. Dan and Naphtali, I'm Gad and Asher. Verse 5, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. The Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous. So the land was filled with them, promise fulfilled. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they'll become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they might join our enemies and fight against us and leave our country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pisum and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. But do you think the Israelites knew that? They were slaves. Do you think they knew that their slave masters actually feared them? I don't think so. I think that's the way enemies and oppressors deal with people that they fear. They try to act like they're not afraid and get them to fear them. But it's backwards. And if our eyes are open to God's work in our lives, we will not fear the enemy. We'll know that he actually fears what we'll become when God fulfills his plans for us. Well, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, a couple of their names were Shipra and Pua. I'm glad that we don't name our kids that anymore. Hey, Pua, come here. <laughs> or maybe we do. It sounds kind of Hawaiian, doesn't it? Anyway, they must have been like the leaders of the midwives. And they said, when the Hebrew women come in, in childbirth and you observe them, if it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt told them to do. They let the boys live. The king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And they said, oh, the Hebrew women are not like you Egyptian women. They're strong. When they give birth, they do it before we arrive. So God was kind to the midwives. The people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. In the midst of trouble, God's still blessing and caring. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that's born, you must throw into the Nile River. The girls might live. So, this is what I just said in your notes there. Pharaoh and Satan oppress and enslave people because ultimately they fear us. Here's a description of who the Israelite people were to become and who you and I are to become from 1 Peter. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, once you were not a people, once you were far from God and you really had no identity. But now you are the people of God. You've come to Jesus and you are the people of God. You've been grafted in like a branch into a tree and you're part of the tree now. You're part of the family of God. You're sons of Abraham. The story of Moses is your story, both historically in your family line and also in what you're experiencing. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Now listen to this. In Hebrews, we hear about Jesus' role with the oppressor and thereby our role with the oppressor. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. Jesus came as a deliverer and destroyed Satan by himself dying on a cross. He destroyed the power of Satan, that is the devil, and to free all those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Do you ever feel like Satan wasn't destroyed, though? So what does destroyed mean? I'm glad you asked. This is a Greek word, kartargeo, that means to be rendered completely ineffective. Satan, in the sense of obliterated, that didn't happen. He is rendered ineffective to those who are in Christ Jesus. He still has a big mouth, and he still lies a lot, and he'll be effective to you if you listen to his lies. But if you don't listen to his lies, and you listen to the truth of what God says about you, and God says about himself, and God says about his power, Satan will fear you, and you will destroy his works in your life and the lives of other people around you, because he is destroyed already by Jesus on the cross. In Jesus' language, the strong man, Satan, has been bound, and we've been invited with Jesus to plunder his house. That's why you and I are about the mission of God and helping people everywhere to become lovers and followers of Jesus because the whole earth is being filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, and that is precisely how Israel ended in Egypt because God was going to use their situation to fill the earth with his glory. That's how the story goes. And some of you that know the story can say, oh, I figured it out. Another verse about our role and Jesus' role. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. This is 1 John 3, 8 and 9, or 3, 8, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So we're going to read about God's plan to use Moses and the people of Israel who are currently slaves to destroy Pharaoh, to destroy his work, and to plunder his house. That's exactly what's going to happen at the end of the story. But right now they're slaves. Just know that. When you are feeling attacked, don't fear the attacker. Let him fear you. Because you are in Christ Jesus, and no weapon formed against you can prosper because God has given you the heritage of the servants of the Lord. I just quoted to you Isaiah 54, 17. Okay. Um, the situation that I just read in, in Exodus 1 is desperate for Israel, but God is about fulfilling his purposes. And know that when he's fulfilling his purposes, conflict is inevitable. 
There will always be a, Joseph, I mean a, a Pharaoh who rises who didn't know about Joseph, like we just read. There will always be a king, an evil one, to come and attack you as you are getting closer to entering into the fullness of promises God has made over your life. There will always be conflict. So when bad things happen to you, rejoice because something good is probably right behind the bad things and Satan's attacking you because of it. That's probably what's going on. That was certainly what was happening here. Attack is inevitable, but God is fulfilling his plan. He's fulfilling his promise. He is about to destroy the evil one, destroy Pharaoh, destroy his armies, plunder the wealth, and establish for himself a people who go by his name and bring glory to him in all the earth. Um, Ephesians 1 talks about how God's work gets done. Stop for a moment. Am I talking too fast for you? You with me? This is really important. So breathe in. The most amazing thing that people can never get their minds around and never have been able to for all of history is two truths that seem to be in tension. One is that you have ultimate free will. Two, God is completely sovereign and in control. And this story fulfills that. Somehow, this amazing God is able to give each one of us free will and yet work the choices that we will make together to accomplish his purposes, even though we have complete freedom to do whatever we want. That's amazing. That's a big God. He is completely sovereign, and his plan is completely fulfilled. You have free will and can choose to follow him or reject him. Whichever you choose, he will use it for his purposes. I recommend you choose to follow him. It will turn out better for you, but whatever you do, it's going to turn out good for God and his people. Okay, here's what it says in the Bible about that. That's an important principle that we will see develop in the story of Exodus. Ephesians 1, in God we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That's what God does. In order that we who were the first to hope in Christ, back to Ephesians, might be for the praise of his glory. You are created for the praise of his glory. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, their sons, and what became the nation of Israel were created for his glory. Even Pharaoh was created for God's glory. Pharaoh is going to choose to harden his heart. God says, I'm going to give him free will. I see that he's going to choose to harden his heart, so I'm going to deal with him really harshly. And he tells this all before it happens. And he does, and God gets the glory. I think that's amazing. Um, look at the time. I love talking with you, but man. Ephesians 2, I think, is worth reading because it describes our former slavery and our entrance into the freedom of the children of God. As for you, this is the description of you and me. You were dead in transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's what I said before about Satan, who's called the ruler of the air. He has authority in this planet over the people who do not come out from under his oppression by responding to the deliverer, Jesus. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following his desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his grace, Love for us, God who is rich in mercy, 
made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him at his right hand. That's the call of God on people from ancient times and in our time so that we will join him in his mission in the world. That's going to happen with these slaves in Egypt. They're going to be entering into the promises of God. And I'm making that decision. Do I keep going? Three minutes after 11. What do you think? You want a little more? Someone said no. <laughs> Go! Exodus chapter 2. Now, remember, they're killing the babies. This might sound like Jesus. Remember when Jesus was born, Herod said, kill all the babies. Very similar. Now a man of the house of Levi, that's one of the sons of Israel, married a Levite woman. She became pregnant, gave birth to a son. When she saw he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch so it's waterproof. She placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Remember what Pharaoh said, kill the children by throwing them in the Nile. Well, God has another plan. He's going to save the child by putting him in the Nile in a basket. Ha ha on you, Pharaoh. So, Pharaoh's daughter, or his sister, stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. This story is amazing. She saw the, the, the uh, child. She heard the, she saw the basket sent her slave girl to get it. She saw, opened it, saw the baby. He was crying. She felt sorry for him, and she went, this is one of the Hebrew babies. We're supposed to kill them. I don't think I'm going to do that. The sister came to Pharaoh's daughter and said, should I go get one of the Hebrew mothers? She could nurse him for you. <laughs> yes, go, she answered. And the girl went, this is his older sister, and got his mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to, her, said to Moses' mother, not knowing it's his mother, Go, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. <laughs> Do you see the hand of God here? Pharaoh said, kill the baby. Pharaoh's daughter says, I'll pay you to nurse your baby. I just love the irony, and God turns it around for his glory. He is so in charge of this situation. So the woman who's remaining anonymous right now, we'll get her name later, took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So now Moses is being raised as an Egyptian. Can you love this story? One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were. So he's like a prince in Egypt now. And he watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that way and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Uh, let me imply this to you. This will happen to you at some point. You will begin to get a burden for an oppression that you see in the world. You might be tempted to take matters into your own hands and try to be the great deliverer. It won't go well. And that's what happened to Moses. First time is a strikeout. 
he may have remembered what his mom who nursed him told him about his destiny, about who he was, about who the people of God were. I don't know. But somehow he had a burden for them, takes matters into his own hands, kills them. The next day he went out and saw two of the Hebrews fighting. By the way, if you don't know, Hebrew is another way to say the Israelites or the Jewish people. He saw the Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? Uh-oh, the man said, who made you? <laughs> You're not the boss of me. Who made you the ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me like you killed the Egyptian? It's like, oh, snap, I thought no one saw. Then Moses was afraid and thought what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. Pharaoh's the king, remember. Moses flees from Pharaoh and goes into Midian where he sits down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. So you, these, these girls are shepherdesses. They fill the troughs with water to water their sheep. Some bad shepherds come and drive them away to try to get, get the water for their own sheep. Moses rescues them, drives the other shepherds away, and he refills the water for their sheep. When the girls returned to their father, Ruel, he asked them, why have you returned so early? They said, well, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. So Moses is getting in this rescuing business. Why have you returned so early? Yeah, he, and he watered the flock for us. Where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man. Short order, short version of the story to make a long story short. Um, Moses marries Zipporah, the daughter of Ruel. She has a son. He names him Gershom, and he says, that means I've become... An alien. Now here's in, in a foreign land. Now you're still with me. So verse 23, God's at work during that long period of Moses in the wilderness, like Jenna was talking about. The king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery. They cried out. And their cry to help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. He looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And that's the beginning of God calling Moses. Moses is now in place. He's now humbled. He now will not take matters into his own hands. He now will be prepared to respond to the call of God. He failed when he did it under his own power. But now God is going to teach him how to do things under God's power so that God's will gets accomplished, doing it God's way. He's been humbled and he needed to be humbled so that he can now be exalted into the greatest deliverer of history next to Jesus. A key verse for you and me, my grace is sufficient for me, for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's our intro to Exodus. Let's see if there's an application for us from the Holy Spirit.